Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The new book, This Is What It Sounds Like by Susan Rogers and Ogiogas, is a journey into the science and soul of music that reveals the secrets of why your favorite songs move you. It's also a story of a musical trailblazer. Susan Rogers, who began as a humble audio tech in Los Angeles, rose to become Prince's chief engineer for Purple Rain, then created other number one hits, including Bare Naked Ladies One Week as one of the most successful female record producers of all time. And in the book, she shares records that changed her life, contrasts them with those that appeal to her co-author, Ogiogas, and students, and encourages you to think about the records that define your own identity. Susan Rogers is a Ph.D., she's a cognitive neuroscientist, award-winning professor at Berkeley College of Music, as well as a multi-platinum record producer. And she is joining us on the program today. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having us on. Thank, thanks for being on. And Ogiogas, also a Ph.D., was Department of Homeland Security Fellow at Department of Cognitive and Neural Systems at Boston University. Joining us today. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, both of you, I think, live in Boston. Is that true? Ogie's in Boston. I yeah. just moved to the Catskills in, in New York. Oh, oh very nice. nice. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful place, yeah. Mm. Well, both beautiful places, right? Um, let me uh, let me start with uh, with you, uh, Susan uh, Rogers. Just a very interesting story. Uh, of course, people will be curious uh, about how you went from uh, being, being a record producer, award-winning record producer, to uh, becoming a scientist. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, I'd love to have you tell, just in brief, the story you tell in, in what you call the overture. I guess what uh, would be called the preface, right? <laughs> to, mm-hmm. uh, if, if the book weren't about music. Um, you, you begin at a concert, a Led Zeppelin concert, that you had to leave early. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was a sad state of affairs. So when I was young, I, I uh, made a mistake. I got married when I was 17 years old, and uh, turned out the person I was married to was very jealous and very possessive. And in particular, he was jealous of my love of music. So I managed to talk him into allowing me, giving me the his graceful blessing, to attend a Led Zeppelin concert with friends. And that concert was the, the Song Remains the Same tour. It was just massive. Remember, Led Zeppelin was massive in the 70s. Couldn't have gotten much bigger. So I was at the Forum in Los Angeles with friends from work, and I had told the jealous husband, yeah, I'll be home by, what did he say, 10 or 10.30, something like that. And I thought, yeah, no problem, because it says on the ticket, starts at 8. Well, yeah, right, it, because I was naive. I didn't know 8 o'clock is just a suggested time. I don't think they took the stage until 9 or 9.30. So I had to leave early. Mm. It was either that or just risk his fury when I got home, which I didn't want to do. So I'm there, and I'm in the seats, and the band is on stage, and Jimmy Page is on fire, and Robert Plant is just this god. And it just was one of the greatest moments of my life. But I had to leave. So I got up, and I'm leaving, and as I left, I just stopped in the aisle, and I looked around the Forum in Los Angeles. It holds about 14,000 people, and I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to go, but I swear I'll come back here someday, and I'll mix live sound. And that was just ridiculous. I mean, here I was. I was 20, 21 years old. I didn't know any musicians. I didn't know anyone in the music business. How the hell am I going to become a live sound mixer? at the Forum in Los Angeles. But I sort of, kind of, did it. 
um, it wasn't long after that that show that I managed to escape from the uh, abusive husband and made my way to Hollywood, which wasn't that far away. I'm from Southern California, and uh, and began. I began a career as an audio trainee. Eventually, I was hired by Prince, and while we were on tour, on the Purple Rain tour, we played seven nights at the Forum in Los Angeles. We actually broke a record. Neil Diamond came along and broke our record. But at that time, seven nights at the Forum, no one had done that many shows. So the very first night, there was a, um, because it was an important show, uh, there was a mobile recording truck there. And my task for that night was to be in this mobile recording truck recording the feed from, from on stage, recording the show. And I, I um, at sound check, I took the cassette of the mix and I, I went backstage to Prince to let him hear the cassette of sound check and give me any tips or advice. And while I was back there, I told him, you know, Prince, I have to tell you, I have to tell you that this is a, actually a really special night for me. And I very briefly told him the story of the abusive husband and my vow. And that had happened eight years before. Um, and eight years later, here I was. And, and I said to him, thank you. Thank you very much for making this dream come true. And I'll never forget the look on his face. So Prince had this veil, as many successful pop stars have to have. He had this veil that protected him from intrusive gestures, intrusive um, conversations that might break the internal privacy he needed. But every once in a while, you'd see you'd see the young prince pop out of that face, and this was one of those moments. And we looked at each other. <laughs> And we just both realized, oh, my God, it's coming true. <laughs> this is something, this dream is something we wanted and dreamt about when we were young. And here we are, hot damn. Isn't this great? <laughs> it was a really wonderful moment. And I never forgot it. I, 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 I took my time leaving the forum that night. This is going to sound very sentimental and hokey, mm-hmm. but I took my time getting out of there. And that night before I left that empty building, I looked up at those rafters and I just looked up there and I said, I told you. <laughs> Felt really good. Oh, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. <laughs> um, so you say, and you, you tell the story about how you became connected with, uh, with Prince. Uh, you say that, um, you, that you and Prince lived on the same street. What do you mean by that? It was an expression that he used. So when he talked about the music that you loved best and knew the best, he called that the street you live on. So he'd listen to a record and he'd say, that's the street I live on, or that's not my street. It's good. I appreciate this music, but that's not my street. What it means is, as we discuss in the book, there are at least seven of these streets. We call them dimensions, through which music can give you a dopamine hit. So the of the seven dimensions of music, there are the four musical ones that we're all familiar with, melody and lyrics and rhythm and timbre. Timbre is sound itself. And then there are also three aesthetic dimensions that we use to evaluate music and books and movies and television. So of these seven dimensions, you're going to have most likely a sweet spot on all seven of them. And that sweet spot means when you hear that melody or you hear that sound design or that style on a record that's perfect for you, it's almost like you recognize it. Like you're hearing the voice of a, of a conspecific. You're hearing a, a voice 
I'm a member of your tribe. And you think, yeah, as Prince would say, that's my street. That's my rhythm street. That's where I live. Or that's my lyric street. That's how I like lyrics to go. And our book, we refer to them, as I said, dimensions and sweet spots. But you can use a, a lot of different analogies for it. I'll turn to uh, Ogiogos. Um, you're, um, you know, study cognitive and neural systems, right? Uh, how did you, you link that up with music? So even as recently as 20 years ago, the conventional wisdom in the mind sciences and neuroscience was that our brain was not specifically designed for music. It was sort of like an accidental, fortuitous uh, circumstance that we have such an emotional, powerful response to music. But most of the leading neuroscientists and, and, and cognitive scientists uh, in the very early 2000s thought it was just uh, a pith phenomenon, just kind of something that uh, was an accidental consequence of the fact that, say, we liked language, but that there was no brain center specialized for uh, studying music. But now we know that's not true, that in fact we can identify very specific regions of the brain that are in fact specifically designed to process different parts of music, the parts of music that we have such an emotional response to. In fact, as Susan already alluded to, um, these dimensions that control or, or dictate our emotional response to music, each of these dimensions is associated with a specific brain region. For example, there's a part of our brain that's focused on processing melody and another focused on processing rhythm and another focused on processing lyrics and yet another focused on processing timbre. And our brain is processing these four uh, qualities of music simultaneously. And each of these brain centers has the ability to provide us with its own reward, its own emotional experience its own feelings of pleasure. So that means we, when we're listening to music, we can have up to four distinct and simultaneous experiences of pleasure and reward that all work together. And this is very new, and this is very interesting. This has only been figured out over the past few years, uh, these discrete independent uh, processing centers in the brain that process different aspects of music. And so I just, I thought this was fascinating and not very well known. And so I thought it would be wonderful to team up with Susan to bring these ideas to a broader audience, especially with Susan, who spent so much time making music and who understands these qualities of music from the other side, from the listening side. So marrying the neuroscience and Susan's experience. And of course, Susan knows the brain pretty, pretty darn well too. So we thought by sharing with the public how the mind actually processes music, we can finally say with some degree of scientific precision why it is that we fall in love with the particular songs that we do. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. If you just joined us, we're talking with the authors of a new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, it's just out and uh, available. You can go to the website as well, thisiswhatitsoundslike.com, and uh, play some uh, you know snippets of music and uh, uh, I guess you, I think, um, Susan Rogers, you suggest people go to, you know, get on a uh, audio service uh, to, to play all, all of those songs mm. as you go along. We made playlists, yes. yes. We made playlists on Spotify and Tidal and, and uh, other places. So if you want to listen to the songs in the book, and there are roughly 135 of them, I think, you can uh, dial up a playlist. 
I wanted to build on something Ogi just said. To me, one of the most interesting neuroscience discoveries of the last 10 years was the fact that when you're experiencing a, re- a reward, a neural reward from music listening, be it a melody that just wipes you out or a rhythm that makes you weak in the knees, what those um, neurotransmitter circuits are doing, what the, those reward circuits are doing, is actually shaping your auditory cortex. And that's making you better and faster at recognizing the music you love. So our brains, throughout our lifetime, are becoming specialized to love the music we love. We know what we like, and we know it actually within a second. People can say whether or not this particular record they're listening to is going to be their kind of music. It take a little bit longer to decide for sure, but we're very decisive when it comes to that because our brains have been shaped over our lifetime to like what we like. This gives each and every music listener a unique listener profile. That unique listener profile means that a given record can be playing to uh, 20 people in the room and there'll be 20 different responses to it. For a record maker like me, that's extraordinary, and that's wonderful. It's this variety of listener responses to music that makes music itself so varied and so delightful. Uh, We wouldn't have these many genres of music if it weren't for the great variety in our tastes. I want to uh, jump in. We'll we'll probably take a break here uh, pretty soon. We'll jump into... uh the seven dimensions uh, of um, music, right? Um, and you split these out into chapters. We'll talk about as many of these as we can. First of all, I think people will be curious, Susan Rogers, uh, how you, you were a very successful uh, music producer. Um, what, what made you decide that I want to go get a Ph.D. and study the science of music? I had the same sort of internal voice start speaking up when I was in my early 40s, the same internal voice that spoke up when I was a little kid. When I was little, I thought, I love music like crazy, but I had no intention of being a performer or writer or singer. It didn't feel right at all. What felt right is being where records were being made and helping out. And by records, I'm using that word to refer to music recordings on vinyl or cassette or CD or streaming. So I wanted to be a record maker from a very early age, but as I was approaching my 40s, I began to recognize another calling, and that was a calling to pursue a life of science. I imagined that that sort of work, that investigative work, dealing with data and and exploring the recesses of the mind, would be uh, very satisfying. And in particular, I was interested in the question that I'd been pursuing in the recording studio. Why do we like what we like? So let's say you're in the recording studio and you're moving a microphone. Why? Why are you moving that microphone? What are you hoping it's going to sound like? When you listen to a performer, it could be a great performer, Stephen Page on vocals, Ed Robertson on guitar, and you're saying no, 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 no on that talkback because it's not quite right. What's not quite right? What about it isn't going to be fully satisfying to a listener, especially given the great variety of listeners that there are. It's a real mystery what record makers do in the studio, and it's a real mystery what music cognition and perception researchers do as well. So I was able to combine the two and sort of continue my pursuits by getting a Ph.D. 
Well, let's uh, take a break. Uh, when we come back, let's uh, jump into uh, these chapters, do as many as we can, the seven dimensions of, uh, of music, and uh, we'll talk about the science of uh, music. This is what it sounds like. It's the title of the book. Uh, we're talking to the two authors, Susan Rogers and Ogie Ogas. Uh, the subtitle is What the Music You Love Says About You. I'll tease uh, just a little bit uh, when we come back. Um, I want to play a little bit from The Shags and uh, have you talk about that, uh, talk about authenticity, one of those dimensions. Um, a, a band, uh, you know, so bad they're good, a good example of authenticity. And we'll hear uh, we'll other, other music as we go along, talk about the science of music. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the authors of the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like. And the subtitle is What the Music You Love Says About You. Susan Rogers is a PhD. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and an award-winning professor at Berkeley College of Music and a multi-platinum record producer. Ogi Ogas is a PhD. He was a Department of Homeland Security fellow at Department of Cognitive and Neural Systems at Boston University. He's a co-author of Journey of Mind. Um, we're talking about music, the science of music. Uh, before we get into the science of music, I just want to, uh, you know, with your take off your scientist hats, put on your music appreciation hats. Um, you say in the the end of the book, and we, we don't have to spoil it uh, if you don't want, but with uh, that, uh, Susan Rogers, you and Ogie Ogas uh, determined you were not on the same musical street, but you did find you did find a surprising musical connection. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Ogie and I, every time we would play music for one another, it seems like we just could not have been more opposite. The stuff that I just love that drives me wild. Ogie had no reaction to whatsoever, and vice versa. And we're trying to be polite to each other. So you never want to say to someone, "How can you possibly like that?" So we're trying to we're trying to be polite, but we both recognize we could not be more opposite. That ended up being a really good thing because the point of the book was never to talk about what good music is, what people should like or not like. No, the point of the book was to talk about just how different we are. So it served us well that we were different. But at one point in our mutual exchange of records, we realized, aha, we do have something we can both agree on that we both love. And it just so happens to be cowboy music. (laughs) Cowboy music, which used to be called Western music from country and Western it's, you know, Sons of the Pioneers and Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and, and all that kind of stuff that, that I just love so much. Turns out Ogie loves it, too. Mm. Ogie, Ogie. So, yeah, go ahead. If I can just say, here's what's so wonderful about that is up until that point, we had nothing in common musically. And even though it was very helpful working on the book, you know, we didn't really feel that bond on music. But the moment you find one song, you know, one genre that you have in common, immediately you feel that connection. So now I feel a connection to Susan and her musical taste, because that bond, all you need is that one link, and suddenly you feel, yes, this person is like me. You know, this person is on my street, after all, at least in this one wonderful thing that gives us both so much joy. Well, let's, uh, let's hear just a little bit here. Um, this is the actor, Tim Blake Nelson, right? Uh, uh, let's just hear a, a little bit of this. It's a cool and I'm a fool, each star's a pool of water, cool water. But with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and carry 
just a little snippet of that, and I assume that both of you were, were tapping your toes along to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing, I was just wondering what Ogie's brain might have been doing. Now, for me, I love that record because I love that melody. I love the change that comes up. I love the harmony, uh, the counter melody. I, I'm I'm in it for the melody, so I'm getting my dopamine release from that melody processing center. But Ogie, what about you? What are you, what gets you about that record? It takes me to another place. It t- just lifts me right out of the mundane into this magical world where people are happy and the rules are different and uh, the sun is shining. And yes, I just it lifts me into a state of optimism and, and joy. Uh, that's that's as, as if I'm crossing into another world. Uh, Susan Rogers, you talk about uh, the joy of a record pull. What's what's a record pull? Something we used to do when I was in the music business, it's like a song pull. Now, a song pull is where a group of songwriters sit around in a circle and they pass the guitar around the circle and they play songs for one another, usually songs they've written, and they get feedback from their other, from their pull mates. But a record pull is the same thing, but with records. So a group of record makers, let's say the producer, the engineer, the artist, you get together after a long session and you play records for one another, your job in a record pull is to describe to your pull mates why this record just wipes you out. So you have to bring a record to the pull that's something that is personally relevant to you, a record that really expresses your inner nature and lights up your constellation of sweet spots. So when you play it for others, you also have to be able to say why you love it so much. You can't just say, well, it reminds me of when I was in high school or when I first got married or something like that. No, no, you have to talk about the record and what aspect of this record just is is your musical love. And when you're doing that, you're not only sharing your private, personal, inner musical profile with others, but you get to hear more about your friends when they do the same for you. So when your friends play their records, one, you're getting turned on to new music that you might not otherwise have liked, but you're accompanying them on a journey into their psyche where they're saying, this is the music of me. Let me take you to the innermost recesses of my own musical mind. That's a wonderfully intimate social event, a record pull. Well, let's jump into the, for, there's seven dimensions you talk about, right, of, uh, of music. Let's talk into, about the first one, authenticity. I want to play a little bit, uh, you mentioned this, uh, talk about this in the book, uh, a song uh, performed by the Shags. I'd never heard of them. Um, anything you want to say to set this up, or should we just hear it and talk about it later? Well, we made, Oki and I made a conscious decision to open with the Shags, mm-hmm. to reinforce our point that we don't believe anyone should be a music snob and that this book is not intended to tell you what good music is. So we opened with some pretty, objectively speaking, bad music. The Shags were three sisters who lived in rural New Hampshire in the 1960s. Their father believed that they were destined for musical greatness, and he believed that based on no evidence whatsoever. But he gave his three girls musical instruments, and he pulled them out of school, and he wouldn't let them date or have a social life, and he locked them up and demanded that they write music and play. And after they had a dozen self-penned songs, he took them down to a recording studio in Boston and paid a 
good sum of money to get an album made. Uh, the recording engineers at this studio were the first to hear the Shags in a studio, and the recording engineers just could not believe what they were hearing, as you're going to hear in a moment. It, it was so bad, and yet these three sisters were all tuned to some musical target that they understood. They would stop each other in the middle of a take and say, no, no, you're doing it wrong. Um, they, they were attempting to express themselves on their musical instruments despite no training whatsoever, no actual real talent or knowledge of how to do that. What they illustrate for record makers is pure, authentic, authentic intentionality. It's, to me, the oral equivalent of a child's finger painting of mom and dad. Now, you're not going to take a kid's finger painting of mom and dad and hang it up in an art museum. It, it's, it has no technique. But what it has is that pure, naked desire to express one's little world in, in a drawing. It's pure, pure art, the impulse to make art. This is why the shags are important for professional music makers, because we need to be reminded of what that intentionality feels like to make sure that the more accomplished performers tap into that when they're on their instruments or in that vocal booth. Well, let's hear uh, just a, a bit of this. This is, I'm so happy when you're near. This is the shags. Just a, it's just a bit of I'm so happy when you're near uh, by the by the shags. Um, Ogi Ogus, what uh, what's your response to that record? What, uh, t- tell me a little about the science behind authenticity. So there's four parts of our brain dedicated to four specific parts of music listening, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. And then there are three broad brain systems. It's not, they're not concentrated in one specific part of our brain. They're kind of spread out, and they take in a lot of inputs. In the case of music, for authenticity, it's taking inputs from melody, lyrics, timbre, and rhythm, and combining that with our own personal sense, our own unique feeling about what constitutes an authentic feeling or an authentic expression. So this brain center tells us this feels like something real to me. This feels like it's capturing some emotion or some uh, even idea that resonates with me and that, you know, illuminates me or, or inspires me or just connects with me. And this is the, the quality of authenticity. Certainly, uh, we feel this with any kind of art, with painting, with uh, sculpture, with movies, with, with novels. But what makes music's sense of authenticity so special is that because there are these four different brain centers, melody, rhythm, timbre, um, all feeding into this feeling, the feeling of authentic- authenticity we get from music 
is stronger and more compelling and more immersive than any other art form because so much of the brain, so many parts of the brain are all working together to deliver that feeling. Let's, um, I, I want to play this cold. I think people will uh, remember this song and know this song. We'll just play part of this and, and then talk about the next dimension, uh, which is realism. Mm. Well, that, of course, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Born on the Bayou. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's great stuff. Um, mm. So, Susan Rogers, uh, t- how does that uh, demonstrate realism? Mm. So, just as authenticity is subjective, it's your sense of where in the performer's body or mind the musical performance gestures are coming from, and do they mean it? Are they really feeling it? That's authenticity. Realism refers to the distinction between realistic musical instruments, ones that actually exist and that we've seen and that we can picture in our mind's eye, versus abstract musical instruments that don't physically exist in many cases. They're just virtual instruments that were created in software. Now, when I listen to records, my reward comes from, in part, being able to visualize the performers. I've been doing this since probably since I was six or seven years old. I like a realistic record with musical instruments that I know so that I can picture the band in the studio. Just when you began playing Born on the Bayou, I saw John Fogarty in my mind's eye. I saw that guitar. I saw those drums. But that's impossible to do with a modern electronic dance record or a techno record or a record that's created, as we say in school, in the box, entirely in the laptop, made with virtual instruments. That kind of record is more abstract. So when you listen to that, I can't have the realistic fantasy that I love, but Ogi can have the abstract visualizations that he loves. He can see in his mind's eye with an abstract record, he can see shapes and colors and imagine worlds that don't actually physically exist. So the distinction between realism and abstraction on record feeds into the sorts of uh, visualizations that we'd like to experience from our favorite records. Oh, Yogas, what, what would you say about realism? One of the most interesting things which Susan just addressed is that we talk about how we have completely different tastes in music, and realism is one of these dimensions where it's very clear, because as Susan described, she really has a reaction to real music to live performers, to guitars, to that gut bucket sound. And I don't respond to that. You know, I, I, that, that just doesn't feel right to me. You know, I, it, I can appreciate, you know, the technique of, the, of realistic songs, and I can appreciate what they're trying to do, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't live and inhabit my soul. But I like 
often music that's electronic or digital or even classical music, like Bach is one of my favorites, music that is has an abstraction to it. That's not real instruments necessarily, not real performers. Uh, I like a band, for example, Daft Punk, which has a lot of uh, synthesized music. I like music that takes me away to a different place, to another world, to worlds that don't even exist. And I look for music that does a good job of allowing me to explore these mental universes. And that's very different, as you see, from how Susan responds to music. But yet, what, why I liked working with Susan so much, and one of the reasons I wanted to work with her on this book, is she makes everyone feel included. She's no musical snob. And I certainly, you know, when I was first working with Susan, was a little intimidated. Here's somebody who has multi-platinum records. You know, she's worked with Prince. She's had a number one hit song. I'm going to be so intimidated to share my musical taste. And then they work so different. So I'm like, oh, no, you know, she's going to think I'm a, you know, a musical outcast. <laughs> and yet she always made me feel so included and made it certain that, hey, our brains are just wired differently. We're just responding to different things, different qualities of the music, but neither one of us are right or wrong. And that's the big message for our book. And we really started realizing you know, that when we were exploring realism. Uh, let's jump to the next one. Uh, chapter three is novelty, and again, I'd I'd like to just uh, uh, play this uh, this track. I'll give you guys a hint. This is an artist that uh, Susan uh, knew well. Uh, <laughs> this is an artist we'll recognize. I don't know if I'm familiar with this particular uh, song. Let's just uh, hear a bit of this. Well, in that excerpt, we we don't uh, even hear Prince. That's Prince, mm. <laughs> um, and uh, but that's the condition of the heart is is the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Susan Rogers, tell me about that. This is under the, uh, the heading of novelty. That's that does sound, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other Prince that I'm used to. But I got, but Prince definitely was known as a risk taking artist. Right. The dimension of novelty versus familiarity comes from Berlin's 1971 studies of stimulus complexity. Human beings, when we engage with food or clothing or anything, they like our stimuli to hit, for us personally, the 
Goldilocks zone, the sweet spot of not too novel, not too complex, and not too familiar, not too overly simple. And that certainly can be applied to music. Um, Some of the music that is made is too simple to appeal to most adults. That would be children's music. It doesn't sell a lot of records to grown-ups. And music that is really complex and really unfamiliar to most listeners, things like freeform jazz, they don't sell a lot of records either because it's it's cognitively taxing, as we might say. But the stuff that we hear on the pop charts has just managed to strike the perfect blend between enough familiar elements that we can ground this record in familiar forms and just enough novel elements that were stimulated from the novelty in it. Uh, Human beings tend to have a preference, or music lovers, I should say, have a preference for that pop music or for things on the right side of the bell curve that tend to be a little bit more groundbreaking and adventurous, or for the more familiar forms on the left side of that bell curve, that would be rock, gospel, and reggae, and disco, and any well-established familiar form. Some people like to stay in that lane because when they're listening to a familiar form, they can better appreciate the little local details of novel perfection. Anyway, in the case of this Prince record that you just played, he was, for him personally, sure, he had a lot of pop hits, but he loved being, um, he loved stretching that envelope a little bit and pushing that right side of the bell curve and injecting more novelty into his music wherever he could. I open the, or we open the chapter three by talking about three different students at Berkeley. And I'll never forget the disheartening experience of playing Condition of the Heart for one of my students. And he really hated it. And he even said to me, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say that Prince couldn't sing. And I was just gobsmacked. But this particular kid had a fondness for pop music. And anything that wasn't pop was aversive to him. He wasn't interested in the more novel musical gestures that Prince or any other artist would make. We all have a preference. Ogiogas, I guess that that is a key here, novelty. We have preferences, and how comfortable are we stepping outside those, right? That's right. And once again, we each have our own unique sweet spot on this dimension. So we each have our own unique wiring in our brain that's determined by a combination, an undeterminable combination of genetics and our social experiences, and then just random happenstance, the songs that we happen to hear at particular moments in our life. All of this combines over time and through repeated listening to give us a sweet spot on each of these dimensions where we have a maximum response where it feels like this is the music that's most closely attuned to my core self. And so novelty, like these other dimensions, is one of these places where we, all of us music lovers, tend to have a preference for music that's pushing the boundaries, or music that's in a familiar form that we've listened to, in many cases, our whole life. And once again, it's not that one of these perspectives or one of these musical tastes is better than the other. It's just a reflection of the gorgeous diversity of the human brain and our ability to enjoy this art form of music. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment uh, on the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like, and the subtitle is What the Music You Love Says About You. 
And we're talking with Susan Rogers and Ogi Ogas, the uh, authors. We'll have more following this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Susan Rogers, a cognitive neuroscientist and a multi-platinum record producer. Ogi Ogas is the other author of uh, the new book. He, he was a Department of Homeland Security fellow at Department of Cognitive and Neural Systems at Boston University, co-author of Journey of the Mind. The book we're talking about is the new book, This Is What It Sounds Like. And that's out and available, and you can uh, check it out at the website as well, thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. I want to talk about melody next, and, the, you know, that's uh, pretty obvious. Um, melody, very important, right? Um, let's play... Um, this uh, this beautiful, beautiful uh, song, beautiful melody. This is Marvin Gaye. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. I didn't want that to end. Um, that's, uh, I, I guess I'm one of those that responds uh, intensely mm. to, to melody. That is that is a beautiful melody, just a powerful song. You could put this in the lyrics category as well. Let's talk about melody, though, Susan Rogers. Oh, yeah. Um, as we write about in the book, our musical melodies are intimately linked to our speech prosody. Um, the English language has a certain rhythm and a certain melody to it, as does the French and the German and every other language that cared name. And so melodies tend to, for most listeners, have some connection with what someone would say using the pitch of their voice. Um, that's, that's, I guess I, I am stumbling here a little bit, but that's why a melody can speak to you, so to speak, even if you don't understand the words. If you didn't understand English, you might still be deeply moved by the Marvin Gaye record. So you can just hone in on those rising and falling pitches, whether they're staccato or legato or whether they're uh, wide melodies or narrow melodies, and get some sense of the feeling that the singer is trying to trying to convey to you. Uh, for many of us, it's a potent, potent deliverer of a musical reward. Oh, Yoga, so what, uh, what would you say about um, the melody? Do we, do we, do we have you there, Oh, Yoga? Oh, one of the important things to understand about the dimension of melody, along with the other three musical dimensions of lyrics, rhythm, and timbre, that's a little bit different from the aesthetic dimensions that we've already talked about of authenticity, realism, and novelty, is that on these musical dimensions like melody, we can have multiple sweet spots. And Susan alluded to that a bit in that there's different qualities of a melody that we can each respond to differently. Some of us like staccato melodies, jumpy melodies, 
and some of us like legato melodies, where the notes are smoothly moving from one to another. Some of us prefer melodies that are in a kind of narrow range of notes. And some people prefer melodies where the notes are all over the scale, in a very wide range. So unlike the first three dimensions, the aesthetic dimensions of our listener profile, for melody, lyrics, rhythm, timbre, we'll each have different, different awards that we'll all experience from the same dimension. So there's many different ways we can feel appreciation for melodies or different kinds of melodies that we prefer, but they will still be relatively consistent uh, within any one person. So Susan might have multiple sweet spots for melody that are different than my sweet spots, but there might be one aspect of melody where we both have that in common. So it just enriches the musical experience even more by having this variety, this diversity of ways to respond to these musical dimensions. Uh, let's uh, let's turn to the next um, uh, the next chapter, which is lyrics. Uh, words are important, right? Um, so let's uh, let's just uh, hear uh, this. Let me pull this up quickly. Let's see. Okay, I'll get right. That, of course, is Seal, Kiss from a Rose. Uh, those are extraordinary lyrics. Uh, Susan Rogers, um, tell me a little bit about, uh, about lyrics. You know, some people will say, oh, I never listen to the lyrics. And it turns out they can be right. Because some people do get swept away by the rhythm or by the melody, and they're completely tuning out the lyrics. They're getting everything they need from the melody or the rhythm or the other aspects of a record alone, but many, many listeners are very lyrics-focused. When Ogie and I did some research on music visualizations, we wanted to know what people saw in their mind's eye when they were listening to their favorite records, and the number one thing that people tend to see is autobiographical memories. But the second most popular response we got was many, many people make up a story based on the lyrics. So a lot of people will listen to a record to let the lyrics just carry them away. I hadn't realized that before we did our research. Uh, I'm not especially a strongly lyrics-driven listener myself, but I realize now that many, many people are. Another interesting thing that we discovered doing a little bit of research for this book is that um, there hasn't been a hit on the Billboard Top 40 charts that was an instrumental record since 2013. Bauer had Harlem Shake in 2013, and it was a hit instrumental. There's a few catchphrases in it, but there's no lyrics per se. 
this is unusual because in the 60s and 70s, there were lots of instrumental hits. It seems like increasingly music listeners today are more heavily dependent on lyrical content than they ever were before. It matters greatly to us. We just have a couple minutes left, and so, Ogi Ogis, I'll, I'll ask you to maybe just uh, uh, do a general s- summary. What's, what's your one-minute takeaway? What would you like people to take away from the, from the book? It is now possible to understand why each one of us has the responses we do to the music we love. And the secret, the tool, is this listener profile of seven dimensions. By spending time reflecting on how we each respond to these dimensions in our own way, to find our sweet spots on these dimensions affords us the opportunity to not just understand why we like each song. You know, for example, I like uh, abstraction. I like authenticity that's above the neck, that's a little cerebral. You know, I like staccato melodies, for example. We not only understand our musical taste better, but it really is a window into our core self because each of these, uh, these musical dimensions, the listener profile in general, and in our entire brain system for processing music is all tied to our deepest sense of self, our brain circuits that are associated with our core identity. And so by understanding our listener profile, we can understand who we truly are. Uh, so we just have about 30 seconds left. Susan Rogers, your, your 30-second takeaway. <laughs> I think Ogie just said it just fine. Um, your musical self, what I like to call the music of you, is tapped by your playlist. I would like for readers to go back to their playlist, sit down and listen, and don't be distracted. Don't have your phone in your hands. Let yourself let your mind just off its leash. Let it wander where it will when you're playing the music you love best. What that's revealing is your deepest, most private and personal sense of self. Music is just about the best and maybe even the only companion that can go with us to the deepest caverns of our own, our own psyches. Well, we've been talking with Susan Rogers and Ogiogas, authors of the new book. It's out and available. This is what it sounds like, what the music you love says about you. Uh, thank you both so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. This has been wonderful to chat with you, and we appreciate you having us both on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, well, let's go out appropriately with some prints. Mm-hmm.